Hello and welcome to the Marketing Futures Podcast, proud member of the ANA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Burbridge. The future is not something we're going to arrive at. The first time I heard that, I was immediately intrigued. I hope you are as well, because that is a key tenet of our guest today, futurist and founder of the Future Quo, Tamika Vasquez. Tamika explained the meaning behind her quote, shared what many marketers get wrong about transformation, and tells us exactly how she handles cynics. Everyone, we are back in the Marketing Futures virtual podcast studio. It's always a wonderful day in the neighborhood when we have a futurist on the pod. And I am so, so excited to welcome my friend Tamika Vasquez, the founder and principal of the Future Quo to the pod. Tamika, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. That makes two of us. So before we start launching in and designing a better future for everybody, let's level set a little bit. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how your journey led you to found the Future Quo? Yeah. So I like to say that personally, um, I'm an immigrant. I immigrated to the United States with my family when I was a young child. And you know the country I come from is a country called Guyana in South America. It is a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multilingual country. Um, I think it's a very special place. And what coming from a place like that allows you is perspective um, mm. and is a lot of curiosity and a general comfort level with, you know, just discomfort, just knowing that, um, you know, things are always going to change and evolve and you're never really the same as the person next to you or the same in a year from now. Um, and just being comfortable with that kind of transience and that sort of movement. So on a personal level, I think that is just core to who I am and it's informed so much I would have of what I've done professionally, I should say. So professionally, mm. um, you know, I've spent over a decade at this point, um, telling stories of innovation. You know, I've, I've been running marketing strategy and business development strategy for startups, primarily in the tech space, but also have worked for mid-sized companies and larger companies that have some sort of technological-based solution or service that they're trying to bring to market. So that's been the entirety of my career. And I think that, you know, because I've been in this kind of space of innovation and technology, I've always kind of loved the complexity of breaking those things down. But what I've appreciated more is what that meant for human life. And so mm. part of what I'm doing now with the future quo is kind of like trying to launch this notion that we're all kind of futurists in a sense when it comes to society and when it comes to how we can start to shape human behavior and cultures and like just effectively create the society we actually want to live in. Mm -hmm. I, I love it. And this is, uh, we've had a few conversations by now, and I think this is what gets me so excited when we can zoom out and, and put the aperture past just marketing and just business. I think that really is the best approach to marketing and business. Like it's really, it, it can't be in a silo. So uh, along those lines, one of the things that really, I'm always out looking for futurists to uh, to harass and, and bring into the marketing <laughs> future circle. So when I came across your name and did a little research, one of the things that really jumped out to me uh, at first was one of your main tenets is that the future is not something we're going to arrive to. And I love this, but can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that and why it's so important for marketers to understand? 
It is absolutely one of my like mantras, I think, on a both personal and professional basis. The future is not something we're going to arrive to. It's not a time and a place, right? By the time mm-hmm. I finish this sentence, we are already in the future of some kind. And I'll caveat that by saying, you know, I'm a person that struggles with time anxiety in general, which sounds very counterproductive to be a futurist that has time anxiety. But, you know, one of the things that I've grown to appreciate is that time is moving. You know, we live in a space that is very fluid. There is nothing that is permanent. And I think that the more you think about the future as just something that you are actively participating in every day, you are actively moving with time, I think it sort of lessens the anxiety of of thinking, you know, I have to rush to arrive to this future or the future is at this place that if I'm not there by the time everybody else gets there, I'm sort of behind. That's not what this is. This is an opportunity for us to be participants, right, in creating something that we actually want to see. I think, you know, I don't want to be in a world where we have this sort of rigid approach to everyday life as though it's going to all remain the same. I think I want us to be excited. I want us to be motivated. I want us to be actively participating in creating a world that we actually want to be part of. And so that's where that tenant really comes from, because even, you know, in a business context, again, so much of business has been running on the same models for basically as long as capitalism has been about, right? So mm-hmm. business has always kind of been about what is better, what's faster, what's cheaper. Most recently, what you see is that business is trying to become sort of personality oriented. It's trying to form culture. And part of doing that is having a vision and a perspective on what the future could look like. And again, that future could be something that you start building towards today. Maybe it's something that you're just aspiring to, but it shapes the things that you're doing every day. And so that's sort of the sentiment that I'm trying to capture when I say the future is not something we're going to arrive to. I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. And I think like as humans, we really want like a static point in time. I think that it stabilizes us, makes us feel comfortable, but this is how we need to think about the future. The future is an activity. The future is a journey. And this actually kind of coincides with something I uh, have been saying for years now that like the finish lines, that's not a thing anymore. Yeah. Like we were like, put it out of your mind. If you're a marketer or a business owner, that there's going to be somewhere you get to. And after that, everything's fine. This is an active perpetual journey. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to kind of lay that out for our uh, listeners, because I think it's just paramount importance. And, you know, if you're not thinking about the future in the right way on step one, it's going to be really hard to course correct after that. Oh, for sure. And if I could just add, you know, one of the things that I think I've grown to appreciate as a marketer, because that's been sort of my training in a professional context is, you know, we have the power to tell stories. We have the power to influence. We have the power to persuade. And it's, I think, a power that is probably underappreciated because it's Mm -hmm. so pervasive in society, like the way that you get people to do just about anything is through storytelling, right? It's through bringing people from point A to point B using a simple idea. And that could be used for good and it could be used for bad. So I think, you know, for marketers, especially if you can relate to someone like me, I have sold a bunch of products that 
I mean, if they didn't exist, I don't think the world would be materially different. And I've also sold products that I think are just awesome and interesting and should be in the world. And so there's something to be said about like intentionality in knowing that I'm an active participant in the future that I'm I'm effectively helping to create. And I'm intentional about the ways that I'm bringing people along that journey. So hopefully you work you know, within an industry that you actually see a positive future within for yourself and for the world around you. But it allows you to kind of take a step back and be a little bit more intentional about the type of story that you want to create and a little bit more thoughtful about how you bring people into that space, how you tap into their neurological senses, you know, how you tap into culture, how you help to shape behavior. You become a little bit more intentional when you realize that okay, I'm an active participant in the future. So the things that I'm doing could actually materialize. And if those are the things that I want to see in the world, then great, I'm on the right track. And if those are not the things that I want to see in the world, hmm, this is an opportunity for like self-discovery and sort of that reckoning that I think inevitably happens to a lot of marketers. I think that's just such an empowering idea. And I hope that that is what our listeners take from it. It could come off as a daunting task at first, yeah. a challenge at first, but really like, we are shepherding and, and crafting this future. We're not passively succumbing to its whims. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that that's very, very empowering once you get over the initial kind of shock to the system. So we talk a lot about transformation on this podcast in a lot of different ways. And I feel like there are a lot of marketers who hear that and think, all right, clear the table get rid of everything. We're starting over. This is the new thing. What are your thoughts on that? I think transformation is kind of similar to like my, my ideology about futuring. Transformation is not like a moment in time, you know, we're going to transform at this point, or we're going to transform because of these things. I think transformation is just culturally, it's a behavior and it's an ongoing exercise. So I think it's never about throwing everything out and starting from scratch. It's always literally about taking stock of where you are today and like starting with where you are today and trying to figure out, you know, what do we know right now that is, let's say within a business context, like looking at your organization, what do we know right now that is working and sort of propelling this organization towards the future that it wants? And what do we know right now that is potentially stagnating or even regressing us into a space that we no longer want to be in? So transformation is meant to be iterative, right? It's meant to be incremental. And it starts with you just kind of looking at where you are and, and taking stock on that. So I think with marketers and folks that are in functions like growth or even like customer success, sales, like any function that's kind of facing the market, I think you have an opportunity to continuously go back to the drawing board of why did this business start? How do we develop the products and services that we have today? How is it reaching and resonating in the market? You know, what are we learning? Hopefully you're doing a lot of active listening. And I think that is inevitably part of the transformation process is mm -hmm. knowing which questions you're even trying to answer in the first place and like listening to what the market is telling you. So what are we hearing from the market? Does that validate what we originally thought? Does that take us into a new direction? That's the whole point, I think, of transformation as a broader business concept you know, it's really just an opportunity to reconstruct. And I think what oftentimes happens, and I know this just from working in startups, is you get very quickly married to an idea. 
And you very quickly become so stuck in what it should be. And the whole idea of transformation is not about the should necessarily. It's about the could. It's about possibility. And if you have an opportunity to, you know, revisit your assumptions, you have an opportunity to challenge whatever the existing status quo is. That's a privilege. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's never about starting from scratch. It's really just about just trying to figure out, like, are we on the path that we thought we would have been on? And are we on a path that the market is positively responding to in a way that's going to sustain us for the long term, not only as a business, but also as an influencer in whatever, whatever industry you're in? I would love to unpack one part of that. What a company knows, that kind of knowledge management. Can you give us just an example where the knowledge goes beyond what you would even at first blush consider? Yeah. Every company has knowledge that is going to benefit itself as an entity, as an organization, but also has knowledge that's going to potentially be impactful for society more broadly speaking. What happens oftentimes is that organizational knowledge is usually not codified and stored in a way that's accessible when need be. So Mm -hmm. you may be coming across, you know, new bits of information. Let's say you have an app and it's in the hands of consumers. And as they're using it, you're sort of uncovering different types of behavior. So an example of that could be like, let's say you're a social media company. And, you know, as people are starting to interact with this platform, this application, you start to notice what are they using it for? It could be the things that you told them to use it for, or it could be that they're coming up with all sorts of other potential use cases and they're starting to develop subcultures around that. So if you discover, let's say as a social media app, that you are, let's say, starting to pick up on patterns of depression or patterns of like social anxiety, you know, what do you do with that kind of information? It may not be critical to your bottom line today, but it is information that's highly critical for society. And this kind of example exists across literally every industry. If you're in the retail industry, for example, you know so much about climate change inevitably, because a lot of the ways that we get rid of clothes, for example, is by burning them. And that's emitting carbon into the environment. You know, if you are, let's say in a brick and mortar, or if you're in a space like you know, I don't want to call out any specific names, but let's say you're a massive coffee chain um, Mm. and you have, you know, coffee establishments across the country, you kind of track the wave of gentrification because you have a very clear front row seat to who is moving in and out of neighborhoods and the effect that your presence brings to the commercial value of a neighborhood. So it may not be necessary, you know, to your bottom line, like it may not necessarily change what you're doing day to day as a business, but where does that knowledge live and where can it be used? It could be used, you know, in a real estate context, it could be used for housing policy, you know, so there, I I get like, so into this topic because there are so many instances where organizational knowledge could have material impact on a greater societal conversation, at least, if not Mm -hmm. like a greater societal policy or a new platform or, you know, something that could effectively change the world that we live in and, and effectively upend the kind of status quo that we have. So a lot of the times marketers, people in growth, people in sales, anybody who is facing the market, a lot of the times you do have a privileged seat 
to be able to collect a lot of that organizational knowledge, what you do with it is to be determined. But that information oftentimes comes in intentionally and unintentionally. And it's just a matter of you being able to see that your organization has a role in society, whether it intended to do that or not. All that is to be determined. But the fact is that knowledge is is capital in and of itself. Absolutely. And I hope we're opening up some uh, frontal cortexes today because this is really like a really holistic and deep way of thinking about your own organization and unlocking a lot of value that I think many marketers are just kind of sitting on and have been sitting on. And this, you know, changing the perspective is just invaluable. So you talked about stories earlier, uh, and I'd like to come back because I think you said it very well that it's essentially a tool what you choose to use it for is kind of in your hands. So how do brands create a story of a future that resonates with consumers? Honestly, I think what I'll I'll challenge is the which resonates with consumers piece. I know that's the most important part. So, mm-hmm. you know, don't tune out of the podcast just yet because I said <laughs> the reason I want to park that for a second is because I just want to be able to say, how do brands create a story of the future first and foremost? The reason I am parking the resonating with consumers piece is because it ultimately will resonate with consumers if it's authentic and if it's actually true to the nature of your business. What happens a lot of the times is a brand, let's say, creates a story about a future that it is not an active participant in, right? Mm -hmm. So the brand, let's say, would have a future right now. Sustainability is a big topic, so we could use that. The brand may have a story about a more environmentally sound, sustainable future, but day-to-day is not participating in actually creating that sustainable future. Day-to-day is not changing any of its practices to be more environmentally sound or more nature positive. So it doesn't matter if you create that story because it may resonate with a consumer, but it is inconsistent with who you are as a business. So I want to focus on how do you create a story of the future in the first place? One, it's by actually having a vision of what the future is. Now, part of doing that could be that you pick a date in the future, kind of going back to our point earlier, since it is not a specific time and place, maybe it helps to anchor yourself and say, all right, the year is 2032. What does society look like? How is it operating? How is it moving? It's really an opportunity to get super, super creative without any restriction or inhibition based on like reality today. So if you were a child and I asked you to write a story about 2032, you'd probably have an easier time because Mm -hmm. you don't have as much sort of limitation. You haven't lived as long to be as jaded yet, but I want to tap into that sort of childlike thinking. How do we tell a story about what the year 2032, 2042 looks like, right? Being able to just like craft that vision then allows you to see, is that kind of story possible, right? Based on where we're going right now as a business, based on our current trajectory. Is it probable, let's say even outside of the context of our business, is it probable based on societal trends where we're seeing like a regulatory landscape going, where we're seeing, you know, voting patterns going, where we see environmental degradation going, whatever sort of like macro elements that surround us as people and as businesses. So that could be regulatory, financial, you know, environmental, it could be societal, cultural, whatever those kind of macro elements are. Is it probable that that story could come to life 
based on some of those macro forces? Is it now the preferred future, right? So if I paint mm-hmm. the story, if I paint this picture of what the year 2042 looks like, is it the one that I actually want? Is it a preferred vision? And if it is, then great. You know, now you have an opportunity to sort of work backwards. Now, part of doing that exercise also means that you may have to create different stories based on different scenarios. And again, this is supposed to be fun. It's meant to be a creative exercise, but you might want to take a look at if you're in a, an industry and it is, I don't know, subject to some sort of regulatory disruption. What does it look like if a regulation gets passed? What does it look like if a regulation does not get passed, right? Those Mm -hmm. are two completely different scenarios that you can play with. It's the same concept that you can apply across different industries. So what, let's say if you're in travel, what does it look like in a world where people are starting to travel twice as much as they are traveling now? What does it start to look like in a world where people are traveling less because they're afraid of the carbon emission? They see the impact that it's having on the environment. I'm just making this stuff up, but you can create different scenarios of what that future looks like. Now you have to take a step back and say, okay, based on all of those things, are we kind of on a path that is going to make that future come to life? Is that story potentially going to become reality based on where we are as a business with what we're selling, with what we believe in, with the types of people we hire, like all of those things. And that is really what's going to resonate with consumers ultimately, because you cannot hide the sort of authenticity. Like you can't make that part up. You know, I always like to say like, Mm -hmm. you don't need permission to be yourself. But what happens is that a lot of the times, you know, brands are very similar to people in the sense that sometimes we're waiting for permission to be ourselves. Like we want to see if it's cool. We want to see if it's trending. And then maybe we'll come out the sort of proverbial closet. But that's not what this is about. It's an opportunity for you to say, like, if we are not on the trajectory to creating the future that we just wrote out and the, the vision and the mission statement that came out of that exercise, now we have to look at who we are and say, do we like who we are? Do we have an opportunity to change who we are? You always do. That's kind of the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how does that narrative come into our communication strategy? How does that narrative take shape in our product roadmap? How does that narrative or that story come to life in our campaigns, in the ways that we're starting to attract people as an employer of choice? All of that sort of comes together. But again, it's that point of reckoning where you have to confront who are we today and are we upholding some element of a status quo, whether it's within our company or more existentially, or are we creating a future that we actually want to see? With so much noise and so many shiny objects, keeping up with everything is crazy. Do you have any advice for brands of how to keep up when there's just so much happening and so much change? I think, you know, this has been a like a cornerstone of my career as a marketer, specifically in tech, because tech is the world of shiny objects, right? Absolutely. And so I remember, you know, starting out in tech, I was doing a lot of work with, um, basically community management, trying to help brands figure out, you know, this kind of world of this thing called Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn, and just trying to figure out how to cultivate community through content and through interacting with people on these social platforms. So this is like, I mean, this is like 13 years ago. It's not even that long ago, but in the world Mm -hmm. of tech, I mean, that's like a hundred years. Oh my God. Um, And then very quickly, you know, a lot of the trends started to really come into play. So then it was more about like how to become more programmatic 
how to become more predictive. Then you had this kind of wave of machine learning and natural language processing and, and more advanced computer science. And so there's like a constant flood of trendiness and shininess in the tech space. And so I really empathize that it is noisy. It is hard to keep up. What I try to say, and you know, working in-house at companies, as I'm working through brand strategies and brand narratives, what I try to do is be as specific and as like surgical as possible. And I think that's really how you effectively keep up, quote unquote, you know, by becoming more specific. Because if we are in a space where everyone's talking about everything, everyone's using the buzzwords, how would a consumer be able to differentiate between you and anybody else? Mm -hmm. Like how would a consumer know who is the most reliable, who to trust? Now, historically, you know, there's been the idea that you just have to be the loudest or the shiniest um, or maybe the first mover or maybe the incumbent, you know, so there have been kind of business ideologies in the past that have guided us to this point. But where we live now is a space where every single company has access to the same consumers because every single company has access to the same tools. If they can spend as much money, if they can be as pervasive across all these channels, that's a different topic. But the fact is they have the same access points. So the only way people can be able to, you know, find the company that they think has the strongest employer brand or find the company that they think products or services are actually solving real life problems or you have the most reliable or accurate information or whatever is just knowing that that's all that you do. And that's kind of the mm -hmm. only way to stand out in this marketplace now is to be more specific, is to be more surgical, is to be more transparent and more forthcoming with information as you learn it. I think there's something to be said about market education. And of course, I'm speaking from a B2B perspective. My entire background has been in the B2B space, but maybe some of this can be even borrowed in a B2C context where the more you educate people about what you're doing while you're actually doing it, I think the more you bring them along that journey with you. And it pays dividends later on when it's time for decision makers to actually, you know, choose which lender, which product, which vendor they're going to go with. It makes their decision making process a little bit easier because you were the one that was kind of educating them all along. You kind of became their go to resource. They're not coming onto your website and getting distracted by too many other topics. You're just so specific and so good and so clear that you inevitably become the one that they choose. And that's effectively how you sort of keep up is by like maintaining your footing in what you know and what you're about and what you're providing. It all comes back to the same thing. It's like, are you going to confront where you are as a business and if what you're providing is something that the map, the market actually wants or needs or something that a future market is going to depend on or want, right? So like, mm -hmm. it really just comes back to your ability to confront where you are as a company and be willing to change. Like that is the entire point. And by doing so, you don't have to move with the fray. You don't have to shout at the mountaintops to be heard. You just have to be you and be very anchored in who you are as a business, as a brand, the story that you're telling, the narrative that you're building about the future, the products and services that you're providing to help people get to that future. You just get to chill and not right. have to worry exactly. so much about being the coolest kid in the room all the time.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like if you if you're always honest, you never need to remember what you said. You know yeah, what I yeah, mean? Yeah. It's if you're always genuine to yourself, you don't really need to second guess every step along the journey. I love exactly. that. You said willingness to change, but not everybody is as willing or is as open uh, and optimistic about the future as as you and I, for example. So how do you convince people who are jaded or maybe just don't get it? How do you convince them to participate actively in in shaping the future? Yeah, you know, (laughs) I'm laughing because it's just my strongest conviction that futuring, you know, sort of as a verb is what we're alive to do. For me, it's like, if everything was fine, the way it was, if all the ideas already existed, if there was nothing new to create, there was nothing new to learn. I don't see personally just being for myself, why I would get up every day. Mm -hmm. Life is really challenging at times. And so the only thing that kind of keeps me getting up every day and keeps me alive is possibility and is creation. And so I don't really spend time trying to convince people who are jaded or don't get it to like become active participants in the future. If you don't care, it really, that's not really my forte to convince you to care. I'm more interested in like, how do I enable people who already do or people who just have like the inkling, like they know there's like a nagging feeling that they know they can do more to, you know, influence the direction of their company potentially even on a bigger level, the direction of society, they know they could be more active in creating culture and creating new norms for those types of people. Those are the people that I just want to enable, you know, I want to work through to provide them with whether it's a new perspective or, you know, motivation or just more tangible, practical tools that they can use in this practice of foresight and embedding future studies into what they do. I'm more interested in that because mm. if you don't get it, you probably won't get it. And so I don't want to, you know, burn a lot of energy doing that. I just want to help people be able to work backwards and have a broader purpose behind the things that they're doing. And, you know, I am more in the space of uh, mission oriented businesses. So I do work more mm. in the space of like climate tech and prop tech, looking at the real estate context and fintech, looking at personal finance. I do support more organizations that are like that, but I would like to believe that it really doesn't matter what space you're in. There's something that's kind of motivating you, or there could be something that's really motivating you to take an active role in furthering the future of that industry or the future of that type of product or service. So it doesn't have to always be social impact oriented, but what you'll find is that the macro purpose, the larger purpose behind why you're doing what you're doing every day probably has something to do with making the lives of people better. And so if you're already there, those are the people that I want to really focus my attention on, not people who are jaded or don't get it. Very well said. Before we take a little bit of a pivot and ask you some questions, we ask all our guests, how can people keep up with you and what the future quo is doing? Where, where can they, if they want to know more about Tamika Vasquez, where can they go? Yeah. Um, so I am launching the future quo officially in a couple of months. And so you will see the website, thefuturequote.com come to life very soon. In the meantime, you could, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. I literally answer 
as many inquiries as I get, you know, even if you just want to say hi, or you want to talk more specifically about what you're doing, I, I just really enjoy the educational opportunities that I get to connect with people. So LinkedIn or Twitter or any social media channel, um, you could also find me at uh, my first name, last name.com. So TamikaVasquez.com. Beautiful. Brilliant. So as I said, we're going to ask you a few questions we ask all guests of the pod. First one is very open by design. Tamika, what are your thoughts on diversity, equity, and inclusion? Oof. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, a little, little, little thing. Just a, little, a tiny topic. Tiny you know. topics. These casual coffee topics. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I all of our life experience boils down to some intersection of race, gender, identity, and class. Um, and so I think all of these social constructs are ones that it's been tough, I think, for a lot of people and a lot of institutions to really confront that, you know, a lot of the modern society that we are living through was formed through acts of exclusion. And so being able to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion to me is just like an inevitable, it's a constant, it's inevitable. Like I I think we we spend a lot of time talking about it as as though it's like a standalone thing. You know, it's like, all right, well, here's the business and here are the products. And then like, here are the people. It's like, no, actually, everything is intertwined. You know, coming from the tech space, I know firsthand that without there being a diverse um, body of people that are working on technologies, we inevitably will have technologies that respond in a way that just creates more of the racism and sexism and able bodyism that we see in the world. And that's not the world that we want. So it's kind of like, I don't like to talk about sort of equity, diversity, and inclusion as a standout topic or as a, as a side topic. I think it's just integral to the everything that we do, right? Because if we're talking about a world where um, who are the groups that we that we talk about in an EID context? We talk about women. We talk about people with different sexual orientations. We talk about um, people effectively of color, quote unquote, which is just the broadest term on the planet. Um, but we talk about these groups of people and I'm like, all right, so who's left? Right. And the only thing that's left is effectively straight white men with money. So that's like a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the world. And so needless to say, um, the alternative is not an option. We don't, we've never lived in a world of straight white, rich men, um, in the sense that they've never been the majority population. Um, and so if there is an over-representation of that type, then the work will never, will never be done. And the work is living through everything that we're trying to accomplish as a society, everything we're trying to do requires there to be a diverse set of people working on them for there to be equitable voices in the room and for there to be deliberate inclusion of opposing opinions, different perspectives, you know, different ways of thinking, different belief systems. Like there, we can't do anything if we're not doing that. Yeah. And that is exactly why we ask these brilliant minds with their eyes on the future, this question, because you're hundred percent correct. This is not business. This is not feel good. This is not, this is reality, objective reality. As we time travel into the future, this needs to be at the, the heart and soul of everything we do. So I'll just say, uh, I agree with what you said. Um, <laughs> all right. So for some folks, this is easiest question on the pod. 
For others, it's the one they have to spend the most time thinking about before they answer. So we're about to see what kind of guest you are right here. Tamika Vasquez, (laughs) futurist, professor, founder, principal. What is your favorite album of all time and why? No, I can't do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, we're, do, we're doing it. It's absolutely. We're doing That's it. This is historical. So you know it is. I, so this is going to sound like strange, but I, I like come from the mixtape world. Like that, that's like my coming of age story is like mixes and, you know, coming from like Caribbean culture. A lot of the times you don't even listen to like the artist's full album. You listen to like a mixture of artists like the person that some DJ like put together. So I say that to say, I actually really love above and beyond anything else, like mixes that I find like on Spotify. So mm-hmm. like, it can be like instrumental, like I love like lo-fi beats, you know, where it's just kind of like instrumental kind of like upbeat music with no words <laughs> or sometimes, you know, just like I'll pick an artist, but instead of looking for the the specific artist, I'll be looking for like the mix of artists like them in like the one. quote unquote radio version. Yeah, like the... the radio. Yeah. Like so that's like my vibe. Like I, I can't tell you the last time I've actually listened to like a singular album um that I could point out as my favorite. That's really hard. No worries, no worries. Uh is there a mix that you can remember coming up that was like you just wore it out uh oh, above yeah. all? Yeah. There, there was one I think called brain food or something like that. I think it was called brain food and it was, it was meant to be kind of like study music. And I think it it is, but it's like, it's more a beat than, you know, just kind of like classical sort of like get the brain moving music. It's like, it's, it's more active. Like it, it gives you some energy as well. I think that's what it was called. Boom. We got it. Favorite <laughs> album of all time, the brain food mixtape. I knew we'd get there. I, I absolutely knew we'd get there because we were <laughs> shape our way to that. That answer was not something we were going to arrive to. Um, <laughs> no, but you're actually not the first person to list a mixtape as their favorite album on this pod. Uh, we actually had a guest who went to Alaska for like three weeks and made a cassette mixtape uh, at the kind of last second. And it turned out that they really didn't have anything but a tape player in the car. So <laughs> those like 12 songs were the soundtrack of three weeks. So you're in, you're in very good company. Uh, and I knew we'd get there. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's bring it up to the current time. Is there something you're listening to now, whether it's an artist, a song, type radio, playlist station, a podcast or a book, what's exciting you nowadays? Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, everything excites me. Like I I'm like a very curious and just passionate person in general. So I'll probably just give you one of each. How about that? That sounds great. So with artists. So last night, actually, I went to see Robert Glasper, who's a musician. Uh, Um, Yeah. Yeah. Incredible, incredible musician. Just, you know, casual talents. Um, And uh, the featured artist was Alex Isley, who is an R&B singer um, mm-hmm. part of the kind of famous Isley family. Um, so that was really, really cool. So I think in terms of like artists, like I'm probably going to be jamming on that for a little bit longer song for whatever reason. Um, I don't know if I just like heard it randomly, but you know, that song together again by Janet Jackson. <laughs> yeah. It's been stuck in my head. I don't know why, but it's just been stuck in my head. So I'm like, mm-hmm. just in my head. <laughs> oh yeah. I love um, that song. Yeah. I mean, classic. Right. Um, and in terms of book, 
So I'm, I'm always reading something right now. I'm reading this book called sand talk. Um, and it's by a, a person named Tyson Yonkaporta, I believe is how you pronounce his name. He's an, he's of an Aboriginal tribe from Australia. And it's interesting because I'm reading the book because it is a critique sort of on how we sort of have, you know, the ability to adopt a lot of indigenous practice and, you know, the way that we have access to like all of this information from how people have lived historically over time. But he's making the criticism that, you know, we're sort of adopting it without adopting the mindset. So it's one thing to say like, oh, we can take this practice that existed for hundreds of years and do it. It's another thing to say, all right, what was the thinking pattern and what were the knowledge systems that allowed this way of living to be normalized? So for example, the environments and the way we want to care about the environment is not a separate thing from the way that we want to care about ourselves as a human being. Mm-hmm. So part of the, the you know knowledge system or the mindset that allowed tribes to exist for hundreds of years was that they were not separate from the environment. They were the environment, the environment was them. And so looking at it as kind of like a singular entity inevitably changes how you treat it. So you don't have to like later on come up with a strategy of how to like fix the problem. It's like you you would have been already kind of part of it in a way that um, makes you care about it. The book is really, really cool, really, really interesting. It also feeds into a lot of what I want to do as well. I want to find creative ways of bringing in ancestral knowledge and indigenous practices from all over the world, my culture included, to see like, you know, how do we bring in some of those ideas in the Western context in a way that's going to challenge the status quo, in a way that's going to give us new information to work with, maybe even new tools. Like, did you know, like the, the chewing stick, a lot of tribes historically have used the chewing stick, you know, mm-hmm. pieces of tree bark to clean their teeth. It's proven to be a better solution than the toothbrush that we use in, in Western modern society. So like even things like that, like I want to be able to bring more of those practices into conversation. And so this book um, is just like, I, I just, it gets me super excited just knowing that there are scholars that have already had this idea and are providing this information to the world. That is really, really fascinating. That is super, super cool. Tamika, Thank you so, so much for coming on the pod today. This was an absolutely illuminating conversation. And anytime you want to come by, you are always welcome at the Marketing Futures Podcast. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Futures Podcast. Have an idea for a topic or guest for a future episode? Shoot us a note at marketingfutures at ana.net. Be sure to subscribe to the Futures Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you're looking to get smart on the future, point your browsers to ana.net slash futures.